of Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. Amos is in the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets, and we're in the middle of a series entitled Majoring on the Minor Prophets. As we look for the next few weeks at different minor prophets and some of the themes that are within these books. So we're in Amos chapter 8, and we're only reading two verses, verses 11 to 12. So please give your fullest attention to the reading of God's holy word. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you that at this time we can turn our attention to hearing from the God who speaks to his people, that you are not hidden behind rocks or trees, but you have made yourself known to us in the scriptures. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, the one who opens our eyes and gives to us illumination, help us to hear and to understand and then to apply and live out all that we hear today in the preaching of your word. Give to us, O Holy Spirit, a heart and ears that say, Speak, O Lord, for we are listening. So, Lord, as we pray that prayer, we know and trust that when we turn our hearts toward you, that you do hear us and you will speak to us. So bless us in this hour, we pray and ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Did you know that our hearts were created to feast? That our hearts, our souls were made to enjoy and be satisfied with only the riches of fair. Now, using today's language, we might say something like this, that God has created us, he has designed us to be foodies. Do you know what a foodie is? Maybe if you're familiar with um, something like Instagram or Snapchat and these different social media platforms, you know that there are there is a group of people who are just obsessed with food. They love good food. They're enthusiastic about it. Now, unfortunately, I invited a uh, a friend of mine to guest preach, and he really embarrassed me by uh, announcing that on Instagram I had 249 pictures, and 246 of those pictures were food. Uh, I felt very backstabbed, um, but I was a little embarrassed because I thought, oh my goodness, that's true. And so I immediately I went onto my account, and I, uh, I deleted the three pictures that weren't food. I said, I need to be 100%. Um, now, it's embarrassing to be called a foodie. Why? Because foodie can sometimes have the connotation of stubbornness, right? Or snobbery, rather. Uh, because a foodie isn't only interested in, in food that fills the stomach, but with only dishes that are the best and most uh, delectable, enjoyable, and pleasurable. Right? A foodie doesn't just eat what's common and convenient, but they search out and they only settle for those things that are sure to be delicious. And so if they go to a city, they're not okay going to Subway or McDonald's or any other common and convenient place. They need to seek out the place that has the best. 
Well, I think about that because when it comes to God and when it comes to what will only satisfy our hearts, in one sense, God has made us to be spiritual foodies, that our hearts are not meant to be satisfied with what's common and with, what, with what's convenient. We're not meant to just take in anything that temporarily fills us, that we're actually made and created to delight only in what is truly beautiful and truly good and truly lasts. So deep down inside, all of us were built, were created to hunger for God, a hunger that only he can satisfy. And it's when we don't seek him, it's when we don't know him, that we feel an emptiness, a void, and so we start stuffing us, our faces, our mouths, our stomachs, with anything to satiate that hunger. So here's the question I'd like to ask you this afternoon. What are the things that you hunger for? What are the things that you hunger for? What are the appetites of your souls? Because I think what Amos is saying in these two verses is this. He's asking us this question. Do you hunger for food that really matters? Is the appetite of your soul for a food that really matters? And so from this minor prophet, we learn this major gospel truth. We should hunger for the word of God that sustains leads, and seeks. So with that, we're going to consider three things in our text today. First, we're going to look at the worst kind of famine, then the wandering life, and lastly, the word that came. So our first point is this, the worst kind of famine. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 11. It says, Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. God draws our attention. This word, behold, is the Hebrew word, hine, listen, pay attention, look at this, consider this. God is going to send a day, a future day of judgment. And the thing is, it's not a judgment against our enemies. It's a judgment against us, God's people. And this judgment involves the curse of a famine. Now, when you consider Israel and you consider that they were an agricultural society, agricultural nation, you realize that the famine, a famine is the worst kind of judgment that anybody in this time could go through. Because famines didn't just devastate individual lives. Famines didn't just devastate family lives. Famines had the potential to devastate whole nations and whole kingdoms. Did you know that this past year in February, that there was a famine in South Sudan? Now, we think, well, maybe that's a light thing, but this was actually the first famine declared since 2011. In South Sudan, due to war and drought, 1.7 million people were facing emergency levels of hunger. Emergency levels of hunger is a step below famine, and the number of those at risk of starvation reached 6 million people. Can you wrap your mind around that? 6 million people. Famine, even in 2017, is a huge world problem. But of course, with humanitarian aid responding and with transportation of that aid and with instant communication to work out these efforts, that famine in Sudan, it ended this past July. It was lifted this past July. But here's my point. Even in today's age, with all of our technology and and everything that we have, a famine can devastate a nation for five whole months, then imagine how bad a famine was in 760 BC. 
Imagine the implications and the devastation that could have. Because there were no humanitarian organizations responding to crisis. There were no airplanes that were able to drop off aid. And even if that was available, there was no emails, no phones, even no telegraphs in order to communicate and work out such difficult logistics. So imagine the havoc that a famine would have on people. Now, God announces that a famine will come upon Israel. But what was surprising, what Israel would have been surprised about, was why a famine? Huh, we haven't had a famine in a while. Because historically, let me explain a little bit what's going on. Historically, Israel was enjoying a time of prosperity and wealth. At the time that Amos was written, there was international peace and there was no inter-conflict between Israel and Judah. And so urbanization was happening, and there hadn't been a drought, and so the economy was booming. And so God had given his people this great gift of abundance. But this didn't promote faithfulness and worship in the people's lives. Instead, what it led to was greater injustice, oppression, exploitation of the poor and the underprivileged. And so God, who has just blessed his nation, now is aroused to anger. So he delivers this prophecy of judgment. The people were not living in the generosity they were called to. They were not living with neighborly love. Instead, the rich and the powerful were trampling over people in order to secure their status and accrue more and more. And God, who loves the poor, who loves the orphan, who loves the downtrodden, his heart is broken And so he is roused to a holy and righteous anger. He cannot stand their lack of injustice and their lack of mercy. And so he promises to send a famine. But what kind of famine? Well, verse 11 continues. Read with me. God says, Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. God says, I'm going to send a famine. But not of water and bread, but of hearing my words. And our reaction might go, oh, well, that's good. I thought it was going to be a regular kind of famine. At least they won't starve to death. But that may be our reaction. I don't think that would have been the reaction of the original audience. When God said that he would send a famine, they would have gasped in horror. And then he would have said, It's not a famine of food and water. It's a famine of hearing my words, and Israel would have fainted. Here's why. Israel knew that food and water was good, but compared to hearing God's word, it was nothing. That food and water could cause you to live a little bit longer, but being cut off from God's word would most certainly lead to spiritual death. If they had food and water, their bodies would be full for a while, but without the word of the Lord, their souls would starve. Now, why was this famine of his word so devastating? It's because this, God's words given to his people is a symbol of his presence. It's the way that God is with his people. It's the way that he's able to comfort them, letting them know that he is their God and he is with them. Have you ever had something terrible happen or you've received uh, really bad news, sad news, news that causes a lot of grieving and sorrow? And when you're by yourself and you receive that kind of news, what do you want to do? What's the first thing you want to do? You want to pick up your phone and you want to call somebody. But who do you call? Well, when you've received that kind of news, you don't call somebody whose voice you find to be utterly annoying. 
You call somebody whose voice you want to hear, somebody you wish was close to you. Why? Because when you hear their voice, you're assured of their presence. It's as if they're with you. So when God says that he'll no longer speak to them, that they'll no longer hear his voice, it is, it's in effect saying, I'm withdrawing my presence from you. You won't know I'm there to comfort you and to love you. He's withdrawing himself. He's cutting himself off from them. And because a famine of his words is a famine of his presence, a famine of his presence is worse than any kind of famine of bread or water. Israel knew this to be true. God had made sure that, his, that their ancestors knew exactly this point. That's why after they leave Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, God sends, sends them manna. And he says in Deuteronomy 8, he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What was he teaching them? He was teaching them, hey, listen, bread and water, that's great. You can fill your stomach and quench your thirst, but what you need for your souls is my word. You need to hear what I have to say. But this is not only true for Old Testament believers. This is true for New Testament Christians as well. This is true for you and me. Because if we're made to hunger for God, then that hunger will only ever be satisfied when we read his words given to us now in the Holy Scriptures. You see, the Bible is not just some religious book, some religious textbook. It's not a manual. It's not a story of some people who, have, who did some great things in the past. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. The Bible is God's revelation given to us. It's not a record of revelation. It is revelation. In it, God speaks to us. That's what the word is. And so when we hear the word, that's why we're sustained and we're fed and our thirst quenched. Let me ask you this question, and you need to be totally honest with yourself. If there was a famine of God's word today, if you were cut off from the Bible today, how would that practically affect your life? Imagine that God showed up right now, showed up to you, and he said, I am sending a famine to you. Don't worry, it's not a famine of bread and water. It's not a famine of family and friends. It's not a famine of money and material things. It's a famine of hearing my words. You will not hear my words again. How would you respond? How many of you would rip off your clothes, fall to your knees and say, woe is me, God. What did I do to deserve such a thing? Take away anything. Take away everything. Just don't take away your word. How many of you would say that? And how many of you would secretly sigh in relief and go, whew, for a second there, I thought he was going to take away everything. I thought he was going to take away everything I need. If God said that he was going to send to you a famine of paychecks, he says, you will work for a month, but you will never get paid, what would be your response? Objection! Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Hold, God, hold on one second. Well, what if in response to your protest, you said, wait, wait, wait. He said, listen, but here's what I promise you. You will have unhindered access to my word. How many of you would go, oh, okay, well, that's what I wanted to make sure of. I fear very few of us. I imagine that for most of us here, and maybe all of us, a famine of hearing and having God's words would be a disappointment, 
but it wouldn't be utter and complete devastation. Be honest with me. Be honest with yourself. If you had everything in abundance except for God's word, would you simply feel burdened or would you feel absolutely broken? If you didn't have access to God's word, would you be a little bothered or would you feel completely spiritually bankrupt? Imagine one day in the middle of service, all of the Bibles start getting raptured into heaven. And they just start flying, floating and floating, and they disappear behind the clouds, never to be seen again. The question is this, how would your Monday be any different? Would you feel spiritually starved or just slightly unsatisfied? Would you feel famished in your soul or just a little less full? Now, I realize that as I say this, I can be, maybe I'm a little unfair. I'm not generous enough. I'm over-exaggerating the case. I'm being presumptuous. You guys know how important God's word is. All of you love God. You love his word. You value it. You cherish it. You, would, you could easily write down on an essay response, the Bible is so important. And that confession that you make, that's wonderful. Every pastor wants to hear it, that you love God's word. Tell me more often. That's a good thing. But what condemns you is not the fact that you don't confess that. What condemns you is not even my comments. What condemns you is the practice of your everyday life. What condemns you is the fact that when you wake up on Monday morning, where you left your Bible Sunday afternoon after you got home from church, it stays there till next week. What condemns you is not the words I say or your lack of confession. What condemns you is that that, that Bible app that you downloaded has not been opened since the last Sunday. In essence, it's not that God has sent you a famine of his word. It's that you are subjecting yourself to a famine of his word. The fact is, not that God has withheld himself from you, but you are starving yourself by denying what he has so freely given. This prophecy that a famine of God's word would come, it came and it went. We do not live in that famine anymore. We live in a time almost 3,000 years after the book of Amos. The curse has come and gone, yet many of us live as if the curse is still upon us. We don't live in a time of great famine. We live in a time of great abundance. The words of God, they're available to us in the Bible. They are not far from us. They are very near. In fact, do you realize this? That for us living in 2017, we have access to the word of God unlike any other generation in the history of the world. Do you know that? We cannot be like the person who goes down into their kitchen, opens the refrigerator door, has to move everything around because it's so full and so packed, shut the door after five minutes and goes, man, there's nothing to eat. Friends, there's certainly much to eat. Because the word of God is like the living bread. It's like the fish and the bread that Jesus gave to the 5,000. What happened? They all ate and they were still in abundance. The word of God is not in scarcity. It is in abundance to us. By God's grace, we do not live in a time of famine of the word. He has given to us his scriptures. He has faithfully preserved it for thousands of years, and it's available in thousands of languages. And the thing is, God's word is not only available, it's accessible. We live in an age of literacy unlike ever before. So none of us are without excuse or with excuse. 
We live in an age of technology where we have lights to read the Bible wherever we are, so we do not have excuse. We live in an age of religious liberty where we can read the Bible wherever we want to, so we do not have excuse. We have the Bible typed and printed and bound and distributed for us to hold and to read and to mark up, so we do not have excuse. We have the Bible in various versions, translated by various committees, handling thousands of manuscripts that are thousands of years old. We do not have excuse. We have the Bible in multiple formats. We have it in printed, braille, audio, electronic. We are not without excuse. We can have the Bible emailed to us. It can pop up on your phones. We are not without excuse. We have the word of God at our fingertips, and yet for many of us, it is still so very far from us. You see, we live in a time where our Bibles are like seven plump cows, not seven famished ones. And yet, why are we still so hungry? Why are we still so starving? What are you hungering for? Is it food that really matters? You see, Amos here said, Behold, the days are coming when I will send the famine. The worst famine has come and it has gone. And now we have an abundance of the word of God to love and to cherish. Are you hungering for food that truly matters? Well, secondly, this is what we see, the wandering life. The wandering life. Look with me at verse 12. God continues. He says, They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. So this word wander can also mean stagger. And the picture is, I imagine, a drunk man who has lost his way, who is stumbling around, staggering around. So that is a picture of Israel. But it's really interesting the way this is described. In fact, maybe it's a little more strange. Look at the directions. It says, sea to sea, north to east. Now, that's strange because normally we say something like north to south and east to west. What does it mean, sea to sea, north to east? It would make sense if it said sea to sea, north to south, but sea to sea, north to east, that, it's not very clear. Well, let's try to understand this. An ancient Israelite would have heard the expression sea to sea, and they would know exactly what they were talking about. Everyone would know because it was just an assumed thing. Just like in our day, let's say uh, tomorrow you go into work and you say to your coworker, what did you do yesterday? Or what did you do over the weekend? And they said, oh, the family and I, we went into the city. How many of you go, oh, the city? Wait, which city? Allentown or Philadelphia? I mean, no disrespect to Allentown, <laughs> but nobody in the history of Pennsylvania history has ever called Allentown the city. You know it's talking about Philadelphia. So in the same way, when they said, God, God says that people are wandering sea to sea, what does that mean? Well, the Israelites knew. The first great sea is the Dead Sea. You may have heard of the Dead Sea. It was famous because there was so much salt in the water, nothing uh, could live and survive there. So the Dead Sea, which is right next to Judah, would be considered the south according to the northern audience. So the Dead Sea, that's in the south. And then, if you know Middle Eastern geography, what is the Great Sea? It's the Mediterranean Sea. It's the border west of Israel, right? The ancient Israelites would look out in the, uh, to the Mediterranean before there were boats, and all they would see is this, this far expanse of water. They had no idea what was on the other side. It was the Great Sea. So sea to sea, north to east. Are you beginning to see what picture God is creating for us? The Dead Sea to the south. 
the Mediterranean to the west, north, east. Well, what is that? It's the four points of the compass, starting with the bottom and moving clockwise. What's the picture God is saying? These Israelites, they're wandering from the south to the west to the north to the east. They are aimlessly staggering and walking in circles. Why? Because they do not have God's word. So they do not have purpose. They do not have direction. There's a lot of activity. There's no progress. There's a lot of movement, but they're not going anywhere. And the point is this. God's word not only sustains his people, but God's word, it leads his people. That's why the psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's why the psalmist, when he asks God, he asks him, lead me in the way everlasting. When he declares about God this great truth, he says, the Lord leads me in paths of righteousness. Because unless God's word is leading our lives, we are mere wanderers. Our lives will be directionless. Yes, there will be movement. You'll go south, west, north, east, but it'll all be aimless. Let me ask you a few questions. Where are you headed in life? Where are you headed? Where are you going? What is your destination? For what purpose do you wake up every morning and get out of bed and and bear through the daily grind? What are you seeking to accomplish with your life? And if you accomplish it, how will you know? When will you know when you got there? What will the finish line look like? The problem for most Christians is we don't know. We don't have purpose. Do you know what, in the last 60 years, you know what the most, uh, the best-selling Christian living book is? Rick Warren's The Purpose-Driven Life. And it's not best-selling by a little bit. It's best-selling by 10 million copies from the second-place book. Even Christians are desiring purpose and direction. They want to know what their life is for. And unless you are following God's word, unless God's word is leading you, You are headed nowhere. You're wandering aimlessly. Because listen, if the word of God is not leading you, then it's not that it's not like you're not being led. If the word of God is not leading you, the world is leading you. Because all of us, in order to to have enough motivation to wake up and to get through the day and to press on and to persevere, we need to be led by something. And if it's not the word of God setting your agenda, it is the world. The world is supplying you dreams to chase. The world is supplying you goals to have. The world is is, uh, supplying you aspirations to pursue. And what does the world say? The world gives horrible advice. Why should you wake up? Because whatever you have, you just need more of it. You wake up, or whatever beauty you have, you just need to hold on to it. Whatever accomplishments you've achieved, you just need to attain more of it. And so you wander, because if you don't have God's word leading you, you are simply, you are going southwest, northeast. And then when you get to the south again, you just go through it again. And for many of us, that is how our lives are being led. No real direction. You're moving around the points of a compass, now, what are those things? They can be different. But for a lot of it, it's probably something like this, because this is the world's message. Oh, what should I be following? The world comes along and says, well, it's easy. Money, family, work, comfort. Okay, well, what if I get those things? Well, then go back around. Money, family, work, comfort. That is your south, west, north, east. 
What, do I, what should I do with my life? Well, do you have investments? Do you have financial security? Okay, money, check. Now what? Oh, you need obedient kids. You need a compliant spouse. You need a well-ordered household. Okay, family, check. What else? You need a better work at, a better position at work. You need the respect of your coworkers and your bosses. Okay, work, check. Now what? Well, now you need a luxurious life. You need vacations, a nice car, the newest toys and drinks. Okay, comfort, check. Now what? And the world says, I think you need a little bit more. And you go back around and around. Does this describe your life at all? Where are we going? What is leading you? Now you may ask this question, oh, okay. Well, what does the word of God do any differently? How does the word of God lead us? This is how, when you turn to God's word, when you look to the Bible for guidance, when you pray asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you through the words, he begins to convict your heart and give you clarity and certainty in the areas that you need it. Where should I go with my life? Well, the Spirit speaks through his word to begin to place burdens on your heart. He gives you unshakable desires. He gives you burning convictions. Through the word, the Spirit leads you to make wise decisions and steers you away from making foolish ones. How? Because it shows you God's heart. How this would be displeasing to him. This would be pleasing to him. The Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible to strengthen you toward acts of obedience and lead you away from disobedience. And as you read the word of God, as you live by the word of God, as you are led by the word of God, it guards your heart from pursuing the glory of false kingdoms, from your own kingdom, and reorients you properly and gives you zeal and passion for God's kingdom. If you feel like this wanderer going from sea to sea, from north to east without direction and purpose, it may be because you are not leaning on God's word and you are not being led by it. The famine is over. The famine is over, so take and eat of this word. Spend time in the word, praying over it, asking the spirit to guide you and to lead you. Because it's as you trust in him and his word that he will strengthen you so that you stagger no more, you wander no more. But rather you have clarity and conviction for the things you believe he's placed in your life and where he wants you to go. So hunger for the word that leads you. Third and lastly, the word that came. Now we get to this last section of verse 12 where God says, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In frantic desperation, the people begin searching for the word of the Lord. Mothers, have you ever taken your child somewhere and then you kind of stepped away and they get lost and they start breathing heavily and they're frantic and they're running and they're searching and they're searching. Why? Because they feel absolutely lost and afraid. The people here, they don't have God's word, so they're running to and fro. But God says something that parents should never say. God says, you will never find me. He says, you can look over every rock. You can stretch out as far as all the seas, but you will not find me. Here's why. Here's why no matter how diligently we search for God, we will not find him. 
Because Christianity is not a religion that man discovers. Christianity is not a religion that man puts together. Christianity is not a religion that man thinks hard enough about and conceives of. Christianity is a religion that God has revealed to his people. It is a gift of revelation. God self-discloses. He makes himself known to us. He chooses to let us know who he is and what he has done for us. Meaning that no frantic searching can ever, ever lead to his doorsteps. You see, a lot of us don't believe that because, you know, well, we live in an age where if you search hard enough and long enough on the Internet, you are able to find out something about everybody. But no matter how hard we search on our own efforts, we will never know God unless he has revealed himself to us. We only ever hear the word of the Lord, friends, because the word of the Lord came to us. You see, because Israel disobeyed against God, they abused the poor, they prayed on the weak, they were so far from God in their hearts that God went through with this curse in Amos 8. God said, I'm going to send a famine of the word. This actually happened. Do you know when this happened? 400 years God was silent. When was this? From the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament. There was 400 years of silence from God where God did not reveal himself in dreams or prophecies or visions. Four centuries of silence, this curse was in effect. But do not misunderstand. In that 400 years, God was not lounging and sitting back passively. In that 400 years, God was tirelessly working behind the scenes. He was shaping, he was directing the purposes of human history. You see, in a play, there's acts one and two. And in order for the actors to have enough time, the actors, the set designers, the makeup artists, to have enough time between the first and the second act, they give a break. So too, the time between Malachi and Matthew, the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament, God is setting up for his next climactic act. You see, when God was silent and the curtains was closed, he was making ready the stage of human history. He was in the back, ensuring that all of the set pieces and the background settings were in the proper place. You know what? God used kingdoms and rulers and nations and governments and empires. He used them like props in his scene, setting them up properly. God was in the back. He was positioning a young carpenter here. He was positioning a teenage virgin here. He was gathering a bunch of fishermen over there. He was even calling that local inn to make sure all of the reservations were full so no one can get a room there. And then he was running over to the barn full of animals to clear out a manger. Why was he doing this? To prepare the world for the entrance of the word of God come in human flesh. The climactic act The highlight of God's scene is sending Jesus Christ, not only the Son of God, but the Word of God, come in the human flesh. And you got to know, it's when Jesus Christ came into the world that the silence of heaven was broken. Jesus Christ is the great curse breaker because he ends the famine of the Word. He ends the time of silence. Why? Because he comes as the word of God. So John writes in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. 
This is what we remember in the Advent season, in the season of Christmas. What is it all about? It's about Jesus as the full revelation of God. Jesus come as the embodied word. He didn't come as a miracle worker. He didn't come as a moral teacher. He didn't come as a misfit anarchist who was trying to get in the way of the Roman government. He came as the final and complete word of God. So Hebrews 1 says this, long ago, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the spoken word of God come into the world to seek us. To come to us. Why? Because despite all of our frantic searching, we could never come to him. We could never find him. So this word of God that sustains us, the word of God that leads us, is now Jesus who sustains us and Jesus who leads us. You need to understand this connection. How, how do we know and encounter Jesus when we read the word? Jesus is the word of God made flesh. To know Jesus, we must read the word, and it's only as we read the word that we know Jesus. You see, listen, reading the Bible is not some Christian uh, moral obligation or religious duty any more than eating food or drinking water is a duty and obligation. How many of you, when you are hungry and you are thirsty, you curse nature and its list of do's and don'ts? Nature. Why do I have to do this? Nature is so demanding of me. Nature is so unfair. No, we simply believe and know that in order to live, we must drink and we must eat. So too, the word of God is not a moral obligation and a religious duty that bounds you to itself. It is simply the way that your soul feasts on God. When you are hungry and your soul is starving, what are you feeding it? What are you feeding it? You know, the famine is over. Jesus has ended it. You no longer need to eat the scraps that the world leaves over for you. We are not poor, hungry beggars. We are children who are invited to the house of our Father who feeds us with the richest affairs. It is my prayer that You would commit yourself to read the word of God because it satisfies you. That you would read the word of God because it sustains you. You would read the word of God because it leads you. Now, I must say this. Be under no impression. This does not make it easy. It requires discipline. It requires diligence. It is hard work. One time, John Piper, he was like three sons. His sons came up to him. He was telling them to read the word. And they said, but Dad, reading the Bible is so hard. I wish I could just read any other book. And in his brilliance, he said this. He said, raking is easy, but all you get are leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. Oh, would we all dig into the word of God? that as we read it and we come to know Jesus Christ in it, that we would know him to be one who is worth more than a million diamonds. 
The famine is over because the word of God has come for you. Hunger for the word and you hunger for food that really matters. Delight yourself in the word and you will delight yourself in the richest affair. Pray with me. Father, we confess to you that we are a people who need to hear your voice. It is the water to our souls. It is the food we need. Lord, it is the oxygen to our lungs. It is the blood that circulates to get us moving. Father, I pray that as we have heard now from Amos, we read of this terrible, terrible curse. We praise you for Jesus, the curse breaker, who through his incarnation, through his coming to the world, he came as the word of God. And so we know that there will never be a moment when you will withhold yourself from us. We thank you that your word is given to us in such great abundance. We pray, God, that you would help us to hunger for it. Father, if any of my friends here are starving and they are trying to satisfy themselves on the cheap offerings of the world, give to them great distaste for it. Father, if any of my friends are hungry and they cannot find that which will satisfy their souls, would you lead them to your word? Would you lead them to Jesus, the word in flesh? And we pray, O God, that it is our prayer every day from when we wake up to when we sleep, Speak, O Lord. Speak to us because your word is the food that really matters. In Jesus' name we pray.